expectations are. If I didn't have Alex at the helm here, I probably wouldn't have been able to stash the way that I did, okay. which sort of leads into you, you kind of you can't expand and you can't keep growing within a group if you don't have really good people that you can put into key positions that work for you. But more importantly, that understand the really core values that you operate under and the things that you want to execute. And so, I mean, we've, we've been really lucky in that way in the last two and a half years to have really strong people come in uh, to work with us within the group. And, and that's the only reason why we've been able to, to be successful in expansion the way that we have. We also think that if you, with our staff, they are in a way custodians of culture and they have to pass on the company culture to the next staff member. I can bang my fists and try and get everyone to understand what our company culture is, but you really need senior staff that you trust to carry that culture on. All right, guys. So obviously Ben and Tyrone, thank you so much um, for joining us. For me, this has been a, this is a big bucket list thing for me because I've, I've been to your venues and um, every one of your venues that you guys operate, it's just, it's just the most amazing experience I've ever had. Like, it doesn't matter where I go, if it's overseas or in Australia. And I'm, I'm, I'm pinching myself now that I'm very nervous as well that we, I get to chat to you guys today. No, not at all. It's our pleasure. Thanks. I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice of you to reach out. It's, um, yeah, yeah. It's always nice to, you know, when people want to engage with, with what we're doing and obviously it's nice to hear things like that as well. I don't think we hear it enough. <laughs> uh, to be fair, we, we we probably listen more to the negative feedback we get and take it more to heart than we do the positive. So it is nice yeah, to hear occasionally. That we're, we're not completely shit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's sad that we constantly look at the negatives, right? Even though there's 99% of people that love what we do and um, in the industry. So um, I, I, we, we, we always say, though, it's nice that people enjoy it and that's what we're there for, but you often don't learn a lot out of the positive feedback. Like you can, of course, if there's trends and everyone says said waiter or said dish is amazing, but I think by critically analysing the negative, you can work out if there's truth in it, if there's a pattern, and if so, how can we improve on it to, to make the experience better yeah totally and, and there's been experiences where you know we received a bad feed like bad google review which gives me anxiety and then you know obviously <laughs> but what but like you said you learn from that and it could be something like you might there might be a common thread there where you might get two or three bad comments about a certain thing and you're like okay we need to change either the music or the or the food plating or something like that so i totally agree with you there um before yeah. before we get on with obviously your venues and everything you guys have achieved I'd love to know where, where you guys started in hospitality. What was the start for you guys? Oh, it's very different for both of us, I'd say. I'll, I'll start. I mean, for me, it was that age-old story of, you know, young boys not fitting in to school <laughs> and trying to work out what they're going to do with life. And uh, I had a grandmother who was an excellent cook, and I think that was sort of where it's, the spark started for me to get into kitchens. But I think, you know, I, I started there a long time ago. I started well, I started washing dishes first when I was about, you know, my late 15s to start to edge up into 16. Um, and then that evolved into an apprenticeship and which ended up taking me interstate and overseas and, um, and, and around the globe pretty much. And then back to Australia, but it's, I mean, that was, that was the humble beginnings for me. And then um, I guess I probably didn't take the industry incredibly seriously until I was in my late twenties. It was after I got back, I, I did a stint working in Bahrain in the middle East. I was working for Gulf air for an airline over there cooking on, on board planes in first class it was, 
more about the travel for me, I guess, than, than, you know, a serious role more than anything else. But it's, it's that sort of ignited a, a bit of a passion in me for, for food culture, um, especially from a global perspective, you know, different cultures in different countries and the rest of things, especially for Middle Eastern culture, which, you know, five years I spent there. Um, and then I brought that back, which sort of, led me into Gerard's Bistro, which I opened with um, Johnny, Ellie and Mel Mubrak and, and a couple of others. So the Mubrak brothers, but it's, it was, um, that was probably the first chance that I had to do something different food wise, um, which was incredible. I loved it. But seven years of doing Middle Eastern food, I decided that I wanted to have a bit of a change and I want to do something on my own, which I guess is where Ty comes in Um I'll let him go into it a little bit more, but Thai had a restaurant uh, called Long Time back in the day, which was a, a modern uh, sort of a Thai high energy, high paced. He'll do a lot more justice than I will, but Thai was, he was always on the door. He was always engaged with the customers. The venue was always pumping. And so he and I just started talking over time about, you know, I said, would, they, would you have any interest in doing something together? Um, and then that, you know, I think we skirted and danced around the idea for about a year and a half um, and then finally decided to come together and do something. And that's, what, I guess, where the Agnes story comes in, um, which was a, a beautiful old building that Ty found. He's got his IT company next door. He was in a meeting and, and drove past and he's like, I've got the perfect site. You've got to come down and have a look. And it was a derelict old, you know, building from the turn of last century and, we just saw heaps of potential and then that's sort of how our partnership was born. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I answered your question, but that's exactly what, what, what. I, I, guess, I guess that's, that was my foray in hospitality, but it's, I've always done it. I think it was, I mean, I guess the most important thing to, for me was it was a job for a while, but then over time it became a passion and then it became something that I stuck with um, and loved and, and it, it's nurtured me along the way. And, and it, you know, it's been a, a, me and hospitality have been feeding each other for a long time. I can't see myself doing anything else. Yeah, that, that was mm. – and Tyrone, before we get on to like how you got into hospitality, the one question I wanted to ask you, Ben, was – and this is a common thing I see among, she among chefs in the industry is they'll get to a point they work so hard, they build the reputation, and then it's either – by the time they hit their late 20s, it's either find it, you know, open your own restaurant, go on consulting or – essentially leave the industry. Was there ever a time where you thought you wanted to leave the industry or was it something you were really passionate about? I tried to a couple of times, but it's, um, it, it never lasted long. Let's yeah. put it that way. Um, and when, need for employment as well. This is always that. <laughs> when, when it came back from Bahrain, actually, I, I wanted to go to uni to film school. And so I thought I wanted to, to go into a foray and um, into film. I've always loved film. Um, it's been a passion of mine, but before I even got my foot in the door, I think I started talking, you know, started in talks when I got, I actually moved back to Perth um, from Bahrain for a very short stint, but it was, um, I started, uh, I had to, I had to pick up some work and then straight away I just fell in love with it again. So every, every time I've tried to do something else, it hasn't really worked. I've been dragged back into it pretty quickly. Brought you straight back into it, huh? Yeah, pretty much. That's awesome. And Tyrone, what about yourself? Yeah. So mine's a cautionary tale for kids to sometimes listen to career advisors. Um, we did one of those personality aptitude tests and they came back and I should potentially look at being in business or around people. And I was like, what do you know? And so I went down a path of human movements and physiotherapy and completely avoided the, the, the guidance that I was provided only to discover that 
my idea of what physiotherapy would be and what the reality is is very, very different. Um, and then a bit of travel and a need for an employment, need for employment type of got me back at, or working in hospitality. Um, during school and university, same as Ben, I started cleaning dishes like a lot of people, paid good money for a 15, 16-year-old in a restaurant. And then that type of led down the path of um, I quite enjoy hospitality, did some hospitality consulting, uh, primarily around music, um, which is my my more my background. And then from there went to, oh, can you consult on this restaurant? Um, and I think with consulting, you often get bought in when the restaurant or the hotel or the bar isn't doing particularly well. So you get to see a lot of um, bad business structure and bad habits. So you get to see repetition. And that's how I learned a lot of what I learned was unfortunate because of mistakes that others had made. Um, but then I was I was living in Sydney doing consulting and ended up doing a lot of consulting back in Brisbane. And we realised that there was a bit of a hole in uh, like a good nightclub that played underground music. So I emptied everything we had in the bank account and spent maybe $100,000 on a system and about another $20,000 on black paint. And we opened this bar called the Bowler Bar. And that type of funded the first restaurant um, that we did, and that type of was the beginning of it. Um, for me, the partnership with Ben and I was something that was quite pivotal in what we were doing because I think the first restaurant, the business plan said survive 12, uh, 12 months. That was the goal. And then I look at some of the modest expectations. There was some thoughts that maybe people don't drink as much on a Monday, Tuesday. Do we need to sell vegetable juice? Like There was some bloody ridiculous thoughts. But <laughs> it was almost like, long time for me was hospitality business school. Like I learned a lot very quickly. Um, I learned probably more than anything, the need to engage with the customers. And by engaging with the customers, you really got to understand and get an unfiltered version of what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And then like Ben said is, you know, we, 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 we knew each other from the industry and probably it was, us in constant conversation about the industry and how it's changing. And then when the opportunity presented itself, I think Ben and I were basically like, yep, let's see if there's some common food. We talked a few and we ultimately said, we'd like to do a wood-fired restaurant, we'd like to do Italian and maybe Mexican. And so we wanted to make sure there's commonality because there's no point me saying that I wanted to do French if Ben wanted to do Indian. Like there had to be some commonality how we wanted. And it was good that we were aligned. and initially what it started off as um, was we're just doing a restaurant together, which was Agnes. But even before we'd opened Agnes properly because of the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll probably touch on a little bit, yeah. we realised that we had similar goals but different strengths and weaknesses. And that's something which I think in our partnership is really good is that we do have different strengths and weaknesses and I think we complement each other quite well. And we don't actually ever really argue about roles and who should be doing what, because normally it's quite obvious as to who should be handling what situation. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And uh, there's so many points there that you touched on that I want to talk about. And I think, you know, the, the biggest thing is business partnerships because before you go into business, everything seems like it's the best idea in the world. You know, we're going to get into business with someone and it's going to be amazing. There's not going to be any issues, but reality is most business partnerships end up breaking apart, falling apart, issues, bankruptcy, whatever. How like you, you touched on the fact that uh, obviously with, you know, Ben's got his role in the kitchen. You got your role front of house. Is that was it very clear from the start? You everyone had a role, and everyone was going to stick to that kind of role. Well, yes, I think it is, but that that role evolved very quickly. So, my 
I think when we, we did get together, it was Ben, this was, Agnes was definitely, his name was very much linked to this. It was Ben Williamson's first restaurant as an owner. Okay. Um, and I think though, what that did though, is in my role, because we had a few other restaurants, same, same and Honto at the time, okay. is that Ben was saying to me in the beginning, mate, you can't be on the door. You've got to be a restaurateur. And then similarly, Ben also then when it became apparent that we we're going to be in this for a long term, we could work together. Ben had to find a way to disengage hundred percent from the kitchen and focus on the business development. And like any business relationship, like you're talking about, it's very easy um, to go in there with the best of intentions, but it's the ability to talk through hard and un- have uncomfortable conversations, which probably made our business relationship stronger. And we've had a few of those actually, if you don't come in, we're not talking. And then one of the same, well, we are talking because we're not going to solve this bloody issue unless we don't. But it's those uncomfortable conversations that actually lead to meaningful growth yeah. in a business partnership. Yeah, I love that. It, it, sorry, Ben, did you want to add to that? I was just going to say, look, I think Ty's patience is probably the one that's pulled off the most here because, you know, I think the, a few of the early one of those I'd built myself up worked myself up into such a state that it was becoming a problem that he had, you know, let's, let's sit down and talk this through calmly to get, to get to the result. But I mean, that was a big learning curve for me as well. You know, you know, it's like with chefs feel they're, uh, they're used to getting what they want when they want in the kitchens, being in charge of situations, but it was, um, you know, working out that process. I think that really was a big key to our working relationship. And I think that we're probably really solid because of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, ben, ben fires me up a little bit more, but like as in make, makes me, you know, probably take more control than what I was used to and I probably simmer him down a little bit to release a little bit. So at top of, like I said, the personality differences actually balance each other out nicely. Yeah. Good cop, bad cop scenario in action. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you guys, you, you mentioned obviously, you know, when you have one restaurant or one or two venues, it's quite easy to be stuck into the business, you know, on the door, like you said, in the kitchen. How hard was that transition from, you know, being – working in the business opposed to working on the business? Uh, for me, it took took quite a while. It took a long time to be able to separate away from it. And obviously with Agnes, I'm still really connected to Agnes. Um, the only way I could have done it is I put a head chef in here who I've been working with on and off for 15 years okay. since he was an apprenticeship. So he was someone that was, he was my apprentice at the place I was working at before Gerard's. Um, and then he left, uh, worked in various other places in Melbourne, um, built up a really good reputation and he, um, you know, good work ethic, knew how to run things well, the broad spectrum of cuisines as well, which is important. So he was a Gerard's me for a while as well, but he's, he's very much, he understands me. We've been good friends for a long time. He knows my food. He knows how to execute it well day to day. And he knows what the expectations are. If I didn't have Alex at the helm here, I probably wouldn't have been able to stash the way that I did, okay. which sort of leads into you, you kind of, you can't expand and you can't keep growing within a group if you don't have really good people that you can put into key positions that work for you. But more importantly, that understand really core values that you operate under and the things that you want to execute. And so, I mean, we've, we've been really lucky in that way in the last two and a half years to have really strong people come in uh, to work with us within the group. And, and that's the only reason why we've been able to to be successful in expansion the way that we have. We, we also think that if you, with our staff, they are in a way custodians of culture and the, they have to pass on the company culture to the next staff member. I can 
bang my fists and try and get everyone to understand what our company culture is. But you really need senior staff that you trust to carry that culture on. And so that way, when a new staff member comes in, they immediately understand how we do things and why we do things. And that just becomes part of their daily habit. Whereas I think if we were to lose a lot of senior staff at one time, a lot of that company culture would go and we'd be starting again. And I think like Ben touched on, um, our expansion has been dictated by talent. And we've, we have been fortunate in Queensland that one, it's a little bit warmer. It is warmer than the Southern States, but also the way that Queensland was able to operate during COVID gave a lot of people in the Southern States comfort and also the final push they needed to make that that move up because the property is a little bit cheaper. We were open. We weren't getting shut down because the pandemic wasn't quite as severe as it obviously was in the Southern States. And that's really fueled, um, of not fueled, probably dictated the fact that we were ready to expand when oppor- opportunities presented itself. Yeah, you had the yeah. people. You had the people there ready to expand. Yeah. So, so when we talk about um, expanding, obviously there's there's a few restaurants linked to both your names. Um, you mentioned Honto, um, Same Same, which was essentially you closed long time and then you opened Same Same, right? Yep. Yep. Then we've got Agnes, Agnes Bakery, Bianca, and and they're all all your venues again. Like I've been to to all of them, and I love going to Queensland right now. In my opinion, Queensland and Brisbane is is probably the best in Australia right now. The dining scene. What, what's what, what's who are you both all linked to the same venues, or is it different partners or? No, so that's kind of that was a process that happened organically. It was so Ty Ty has one other business partner, or did have one other business partner with um, with Same Same and Honto uh, when we decided to open Agnes, and then when we opened Agnes, it was uh, Ty the other business partner, Frank and myself in equal partnership, um, and then Bianca was the same thing again. And then I remember there was a time. I think we're sitting down after Bianca had opened, and you know we were having issues with some of the management staff in one of the other venues that was ties and you know he wanted my advice and help to to get that across the line and then i was i was willing to give it freely obviously and i can't remember how it came up i think i would have brought it up i said you should be because the other thing is sorry to cut you off ben is in a partnership if i was not focusing as much on agnes because i was in same same bianca or honto but ben was equally benefiting from that he doesn't mind but I understand that resentment could happen if he had nothing to do with any of the other restaurants and I was focusing my time equally between the venues, but therefore Agnes was only getting 25% of my attention. I would be equally upset if the roles were reversed. So it made sense for us to all go in and our partnerships are simple. We're equal partners um, with Frank, Ben and myself. And that way things are easy. There's, there's no complications. Oh, I deserve more of this because i am got a better background in this particular cuisine. By that equality, it's very rarely that I'm like, Ben, how come you're not? Like, we know we're working. We're working on our businesses together and where we we go where it's needed. Yeah, I love that. The fact that you said you've, you know, you're all equal partners and everyone everyone knows that it doesn't matter if you're putting in time in Bianca or same, same, or Agnes. It's all it's all going back to the same same crew, right? So, yeah, yeah that's exactly. We, we, we've all got different skill sets as well. So it works really well, you know. I mean, the split, if you look at it just at face value without getting into the details, you know, I handle the back of house things, Ty handles anything to do with the front of house, and then Frank, our third partner, he deals with bureaucrats basically. Payroll yeah. <laughs> so and HR. Speaks yeah. to lawyers and, and all, the, all the other things that we don't necessarily want to do, although they're necessary evils of the industry. So yeah, it, it just it works really well. And then Frank, of course, if Ty and I ever do disagree on something, which we very, we, we never have so far, we always come to an agreement between ourselves, it's very amicable, but 
Tyke, Tyke, uh, Frank could be that third vote of power, which yeah. just sways it for and against. And we all came to an agreement ahead that if it ever comes to that, whoever loses that vote just goes with it. And that's yeah. the way it's going to be. Loses well, graciously. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you build such an amazing company and, and I think it's, it'd be heartbreaking to think that, you know, if someone can't agree with one decision that ends up falling apart. So like you said, it's a matter of just having that respect and saying, cool, third person comes in, makes a decision and moves on from there. So, um, exactly. yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about, um, uh, the, the Brisbane culture. I, I know I touched on it a little bit, but for so long it's, I lived in Brisbane, I think in, in 2006, 2007, and probably the best thing you could eat there was coffee club and, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't the dining scene. It was pretty, like, not that I knew of anyway, but over the last few years, obviously, you know, the, the Brisbane, especially during the, where the Carlisle precinct is, it's just exploded. And overall, the whole hospitality experience around that precinct is, is probably the best in, in Australia. Um, Sorry, our windows are getting cleaned <laughs> up. <laughs> I noticed I was trying to play it cool, but... Uh, <laughs> No, I just heard you thought and then I looked around. I was like, okay, sorry. No, that's fine. Most of it, most of it's going to be best thing plan, Phil. <laughs> most of it's going to be um, on audio anyway, so it's totally fine. But where where did this resurgence of, of of the dining culture come from in Brisbane? Obviously, like you said, during COVID, you had um, people moving to Brisbane and and um, opening venues because it's nicer weather. But where where was like why has it only happened the last few years? Uh, I think. Two big precincts, Howard Smith Wharves, um, came on board about the same time as the Callow. And I think what Howard Smith Wharves, it's um, a much bigger precinct than James Street. Um, I think on a, a weekend it would have six to 8,000 people and it might even be undercooking that. Wow. Um, there's big beer halls. And I think Adam Flaskus, who's the the head person behind Howard Smith Wharves, I think he did an amazing job in taking something that any international tourist on a Sunday would enjoy walking along the river, stopping and having a coffee or a beer or a burger. And then you've also happened to have really good restaurant operators um, in there. You've got um, John who's got uh, Apollo and Chocho-san in Sydney. He's opened Greco and Yoko, so they're Greek and Japanese equivalents. Yeah. Uh, and then Louis Tickram came back and he's the head chef of Stanley. So that really put that precinct on a map, like people who do really good food at a high level. And then obviously, like you said, the Kalar, um, the Maloofs who created that precinct, it's quite amazing. You can see that no expense has been spared. Mm. And you could imagine at the end of that development, like we know what it's like when you open a restaurant, you're just about to open, there's another bill and another bill and, oh, there's a variation. Just their commitment to doing it properly, I think, has really made the Kalar what it is. It would have been easy to pull up stumps 20% earlier and everyone still would have been impressed but nothing was ever spared, and that's yeah. what is. But also from their perspective with the Callow precinct, or the James Street precinct, we should say, it's, um, there was, there's always been a very careful selection of the operators that should be there, yeah. which retail should be there, which restaurants should be there, what those restaurants are going to offer, and it's that careful selection from a body that's sort of governing the entire thing that's made it as strong as it is. You know, It's not just one of those scenarios that, you know, here's a lease, it's up, as it's a free-for-all, whoever the highest bidder is and the first one in is going to get this spot. It was They were cautious about who was going yeah. where and hand, where hand, it was going to be. Hand-picked, right? Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. And then I think probably tying all that back into the resurgence, I think those two precincts certainly made, probably put it, Brisbane more on the map as far as it was a dining precinct because I think prior to three years ago, there was lots of good restaurants, but they existed on islands, and so they probably didn't get as much 
of a spotlight because it was, you know, Gerard's was on James Street and that got the most of the acclaim, but probably would have got more in this current day because there's more eyes on Brisbane. Long time was somewhere else. There's all these other venues that I think did really well, but didn't probably weren't united, so therefore didn't get the publicity. Yeah. And I think there's a there's an understated warmth to Brisbane hospitality that resonates with people, particularly when they're up from the southern states on holidays. You could tell that the people are genuinely friendly. It's not a fake friendly. And they're also they're, they're genuine people who are very warm. And I just think the more people come into Brisbane now because there was a reason to come to Brisbane, before if I said, Phil, you should come on holidays to Brisbane, you'd probably smirk and say, oh, maybe I'll meet you at Noosa or Byron Bay. And now people are coming. And so by more people coming to Brisbane, I think Brisbane's always had a lot of this, but now it's actually being spotlighted because there's reasons and destinations for people to come and visit. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And you're, you're 100% right. Like it's it's now, it's like I, I used to go to Gold Coast and obviously, you know, Burley and Broad Beach is a lot of great venues, but – Brisbane's now always part of the trip when I go up north, you know, and I think that's testament to you guys and what you have built. What you obviously spoke about the the landlords, the Maloof family that built the Carlisle. Are they the same landlords, uh, your landlords as well? Yeah. Same landlords. Yeah. Or, or the, the whole precinct is one one landlord. Uh, no. So it's the, on that side. So, I mean, that, that entire block that encapsulates, you know, from James street markets, uh, all the way up in, into the Calo on the other side, that that's the Malou family. So, okay. but there's, um, on the other side of the road, there's what well, I would say, look, there's obviously exceptions to the rule, but there's about three groups of landlords that are all intertwined in some way. Funnily enough, they're all actually Lebanese Australians, majority of them but they've they've sort of yeah exactly they've all come together in that area and they've 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 collaborated with yeah. a vision of what it's going to be what james street is going to be yeah yeah and i i think at one one point someone was trying to open a woolworths on james street and then that got kiboshed because they talk about the tenant and the tenant mix mm. like ben says they carefully pick them to make sure that the precinct grows from strength to strength um and essentially what ben was saying is yeah one side um the Maloofs, the other side, um, Georges and Jameses, the Georges and the Jameses. Mm. And so there, and so then you've got a few other people on the street as well, but that were the predominant ones in the beginning. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, I spoke to Simon Gloftus obviously a couple of episodes ago and, and he talks about the Maloof family and how literally within a minute he knew that these guys were, were people he wants to work with. How important is it finding that landlord that obviously understands what you can bring to the table and making sure you guys do a good lease? So important. It is paramount. So, I mean, uh, to be honest, now with the growth moving forward, I think it's probably one of the first things that we consider is this landlord somebody that we want to go into business with, essentially, because you are in an agreement together and you need to be able to work with those people on a day to day basis. And it, it is really important to us. And it's something that we consider um, quite seriously before we even consider what the business would look like or what it's going to be. Yeah. And, and no more evident than what we've just gone through. I still remember Agnes hadn't quite opened yet. It was opening the next week. This is March two years ago when the pandemic began and the government stopped all hospitality in a lot of industries. I remember that the Monday afterwards, we had a bit of a staff meeting and, you know, we're trying to make sense of what that meant for the future. And Cal and Michael were walking through, and like not finally, like an empty precinct, you know, a precinct that was always busy and hard to get car parks. They pulled me aside and they said, look, if you want to stay open for takeaway, rent's free. If you want to close, rent's free. We'll get through this together. You will be here when we come back through because we need it to reboot when we do. 
And to have that confidence, that's amazing. We still had other stresses, don't get me wrong, but just to know that you're in business with people of that character and that they were losing money as well. Like they've just built this beautiful hotel. It just started getting to that 100% occupancy. No one was more affected than them, but they were able to look at the the overall ecosystem that they built and understand, you know, how, how that system existed and to even have the presence of mind to have that conversation with us was incredible and something that we'll never forget. Yeah. I think that's, that's so special. And I think going through the hardest period of our lives in hospitality anyway, when, when no one knew what was going on to get that reassurance from your landlord is, is, is very special and very rare. Yeah. And, and, and then conversely, then when we started doing takeaway and it was working, we actually said, hey, we can pay some rent now. So yeah. because they had shown us so much faith and I guess acted in such with such goodwill, we in turn, the second we could pay rent, we said, oh, look, things are stabilised, we're pretty good, let us start paying some rent. So I, I, I think, and that's the only way, it's like a, a business relationship or a relationship with your friends, there's got to be, you know, that that good faith shown by both sides in order to keep progressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. You know that? Sorry, go on. Sorry, go on. No, no, you're right. But that, that faith was shown in turn from, you know, the banks as well and all the other institutions during that period. It really was a great time. But, I mean, conversely to that with the Maloose, I mean, Frank, Frank owns the building here at Agnes that we own. So we brought him in. Frank bought the building. So he's also a business partner, but he's also our landlord. And we were, we were one week off opening. We'd sunk wow. millions of dollars into this project. You know, I'd put my life savings burn my life savings getting this open thinking we're a week away i'll start to get some income coming back through and we'll be okay after that and then it's like no we're gonna lock down we couldn't even get the doors open so you know, that's when we switched into being a bakery but frank was instrumental in that and he was incredible you know he was he had his balls to the wall as well financially getting this open and um you know the, yeah he was incredible to deal with and and you know the people he was dealing with were incredible to him also so I mean, it, did, it showed a lot of, I think, the, the pandemic about human nature and how people do band together when things are things are tough and outside of our control. And, and sometimes in our industry, I think community is something that's abandoned. Everyone's like, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And I think the pandemic really did, particularly in Brisbane, it's probably the only city I can talk to because that's where we're living, but our community existed. You know, we stayed open for takeaway. We provided, you know, still an opportunity if you're celebrating your birthday to pick up something special and sit down as a family or a friendship group. And those people, you know, even though we were hurting, if it was a birthday, we'd give them a bottle of wine or we'd give them some extra. And they'd call up and say, oh, I can't believe you did that. And we're like, no, we can't believe you're supporting us. Thank you so much. So there was this this little life that existed and we built this community during COVID. And I think that's really helped us moving forward is to understand that community is everything. And even though things have started to really get back to normal, to understand that we shouldn't have go back to the old ways of that hospitality. Oh, that was my staff member. It still should be a community in the bigger picture because I think that when that exists, everyone has a chance to succeed and, and, and make their livelihood from it. Yeah. I, I love that. And, and and I think everything you just spoke about is what hospitality should be. And so the, the yeah. fact that you guys are doing so well is for that reason. And, and like you said, when, you know, when people were supporting us when we closed, it was just the most beautiful thing. People were buying five bags of coffee beans and, you know, like kilo bags and they don't even have a coffee machine at home, you know? So it, it was very special. Yeah. So, so, so let's talk about that COVID period. Um, obviously, thankfully, you know, we're out of it now, obviously it's still going on, but from a business point of view, things are looking really good, but from a mental health point of view, from a struggling point of view, when you guys, before we knew any support, before you heard, like before the rent relief, all that kind of stuff, what was the feeling going through your minds? Obviously, Ben, you said that you had put all your money into this business and 
you guys were starting to get a lot of traction. Talk to us about that period. I was incredibly anxiety-inducing. It was, I mean, it started with disbelief, I think. I mean, that's That was the first point, you know, is this really going to happen? And then is it just going to be a couple of weeks? And then with time, I don't know, the energy of it. But mental health-wise, I guess for me, and I can only speak from my own experience, I just switched into the same thing that I think you learn from working in kitchens. Like, especially in my time, your kitchens used to be, you know, you get your ass handed to you on a day-to-day basis. Uh, there's 50 problems that you deal with on a daily basis as well, or you've got somebody over the top that's breathing down your neck and shouting at you and you have to make things work. And it's, it's a very, it was always a very difficult environment to thrive in. And I feel like if you make it long enough in the industry, that's the thing that it teaches you the most. Um, grit. Grit. And that's really what it came down to was, right, it's time to roll up the sleeves. There's nothing we can do about this, but what we can do is hustle and make something of it and try and make it work, which is what we did. Um, I actually found it hugely satisfying. I didn't have any mental health issues that came from it at all. And, and again, not trying to take anything away from anybody who did. And there's a lot of horror stories out there of, from people as well, but it's, you know, we were also about to open a business. So I was excited for that reason as well. And I was excited for what Agnes was going to be. And it's a beautiful old building. And what we did with it was, you know, uh, I'm very proud of what Agnes is and I love it. And there's a big piece of myself in it, but it was, yeah. Uh, look, uh, day day one for the bakery is probably the best example. And Ty, I'll give you a couple of analogies about that, but you know, we didn't even think it was going to work with, you know, the story went was, look, we got all these staff on the trainings there. I had a guy with me that was, um, testing all the sourdough uh, for the recipe at the time uh, for the restaurant at the time, and we just looked at it and thought, right, retail is going to be okay. People still need to come and Essential buy services. supplies, so we can do something with that. And if we do that, we don't have to expose the main dining room of the restaurant to the public. We can just isolate it to the bar that was downstairs off the street front. Um, let's just see how we go. And if we can make enough money that we can keep people paid, that'll be enough for us. And to, just to keep our own families fed, that'll be enough. So, you know, what, what can we do and how's that going to work? And I remember day one, Ty tells the story about the night and I'll let him elaborate if he needs to, but it was, you know, went from nobody there when the doors opened and I'm like, it's okay. If we sell a few things, it's all right. As long as we get a few people down here and then pretty soon it filled up and then we were sold out. I think two, two hours after opening completely sold out of everything we made. And I thought we completely overcooked it. And I had to jump in. I ran up and go, Ben, it's amazing. I gave him a hug and they were like, Hey shit, we're not meant to be hugging. Quickly go wash our hands. <laughs> and then I was happy. Ben was sad. And I was like, why are you sad? He said, well, look at all the people have turned up since that we've let down. I'm like, yeah, but people understand, you know, there's only so much he goes, no, I'm going to go home, sleep for two hours and I'll come back and I'll bake longer and make more. And that's what we did. And the, the guys that were here with us, they did the same thing. And it's, look, we couldn't have done it without them either. The chefs that we had in the kitchen, they were in for a penny and in for a pound as much as we were. And they all went up their sleeves. And the majority of them, you know, chefs that have never worked in pastry that all of a sudden are making 400 donuts a day, you know, and, and the rest of it out of the kitchen or the, you know, the sourdough, we went from making, I think, I think it was like 50 loaves made for the first day. And then in the end, it was 150 to 200 and we're making out of this oven that was never built to be a baker's oven. It's all wood fired as well. And, you know, the only way to describe it is I don't know if you ever remember when iPhones first started, there was that app that used to have to land planes and there was like, anyway, it was like an air control person that you'd have to map all these things. That oven that they were running was just like that. Everything was precise. Every minute was accounted for. And if you didn't, it would crash. Wow. 
<laughs> took ages working through the night. I've got the utmost respect for bakers and what they do in their industry because it's completely antisocial hours. But for me, it was great, mate. Like, you know, I had a fair bit of time before Agnes opened. You know, I got a little bit of work down in Sydney helping out Ibi Mabata at, at Noor for a little while. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, which was good, but it was kind of, um, yeah, I put on quite a few kilos before we got the door open to this with the amount of downtime that I had and the yeah. stresses involved. And, and I lost them all during the bake-off because, you know, there was no room for knock-off drinks and, and partying when, you, when you're working from 6 p.m. till 10 a.m. So <laughs> I was never going to go home and have a beer, you know, with the kids at home before they pulled out their laptops to get on to school. Yeah. But it was um, – but what, what, was, what was good, though, is like Ben said, we are about to open, so we had – bar managers and supervisors and restaurant managers and sommeliers who we all needed to work and be distracted from reality because mm. all you, uh, we had all these skilled people. So we had our restaurant managers, bar supervisors, sommeliers. They also, we all needed to keep busy. What we didn't want to do was go home and look at nine or look at, um, you know, look at the Australian, look at overseas news and actually see the reality of what was happening in the world. So what it meant is we had all these really highly qualified people and customers were coming in and because we couldn't get to sell them, you know, restaurant food and give them a dining experience, we had our staff giving people dining experiences from a bakery and it really actually set the the restaurant up in good stead because people were like, wow, if they're that passionate about explaining the process of how this Danish was made or what a Queen Amman is, where its origins were, and they took the time, even though it was a $6 item, imagine what the restaurant's going to be like. It also had its downfalls that people thought we were selling pizza and pastries when we opened up as a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're here for the pizza. It was delicious. We're like, oh, we don't actually sell it. We yeah. do have flatbread. Um, the first two weeks, well, honestly, if I had a dollar for every time some of the customers sat down, it's like, what do you mean you don't sell pizzas? <laughs> <laughs> we had a dollar, we would have had at least five dollars, but you know, <laughs> it seems like a lot. <laughs> but what, what was it? I mean, again, going back to you guys, it didn't matter what you were doing, it was the hospitality that you were giving to the guests and the experience. But also, what did that do for your business in the sense of did it allow you to spend more time on fine tuning those things like, you know, getting the training right, building the culture, all those kinds of things? Yeah, yeah. And, and also Agnes, the venue, because we were about to open, we had this bloody big wall, which would have, in hindsight, been absolutely diabolical. And we kept looking at saying, there's something wrong about this room. So we said, do you know what it is? Let's knock down this wall. And it's like, actually, this wall, the wall, which is blank, we should have beautiful wine bottles displayed there. So we added these things and it gave us this time. So when we did open as a restaurant, people were like, wow. And it was probably the most complete restaurant we did because we had six months looking at this empty canvas with no customers mm. to figure out how to fine tune it to make it the best it could. Um, from our other businesses, so we had Same Same and Honto opened, that presented a different challenge because like Ben says, we had to create a business from nothing from Agnes and we couldn't serve Agnes food because no one actually knew what Agnes was and we didn't want their first experience of Agnes to be a representation as to the business and then us misrepresent what it was and have people say, ah, we had their food in COVID. It wasn't for us. So the bakery gave us this great segue that it was nothing to do with what we're actually doing yeah. for the restaurant. For Same Same and Honto, they'll set up a little bit differently that there was an existing following, there was an existing brand, so we just had to turn on the takeaway tap. Um, but that first Monday, which I was telling you about when we, we talked to the Maloofs, we sat with our staff and said, look, first and foremost, we don't know what this disease is. And if someone gets it in our staff, at that stage, I think we had to shut for two or three weeks. And I said, that means everyone's livelihood, it's over. So what it needs us to do is come together and say, we're going to commit to turning up to work, working, going to the shop, 
only spending time with the people we live with and going home. If you can't do that, you have to do the honourable thing and actually not work and stand wow. down. And our sous chef at the time, champion bloke, goes, yeah, I can't trust myself. I'm going to want to go out and have some beers. I'm like, you can't go out anywhere. But he said, so, and I was like, mate, I really, really, really appreciate the honesty. We'll pay you anyway. Um, yeah, like it, it took a lot in an uncertain time to actually have a hard look at yourself and say, I can't do it. But then what we did for everyone else, I said, look, we're happy to stay open for takeaway. We obviously can't afford to lose money. You know, like we can't yeah. because we don't have the same money come in. But this is what everyone needs to do. One, call out banks and see if they can put a hold on any car loans and credit card loans negotiate with any rentals or your mortgage to try and pause or reduce it, but then come back tomorrow with a number that you need to make to survive. So add up your healthcare, your phone, your credit card, all the things after you've negotiated, whatever that is, we all put that money into a hat and that's what we're working towards, that plus cost of goods. And if we can do that, we can all stay engaged in the work, but also a distraction from reality. We also spoke to some suppliers who donated food and they said that, you know, their business obviously now had grown a lot because retail was up. So they said they'll donate some food. So we said to our staff, we'll put on staff meal every day. Even if you're not working, you can come in and eat for free. So that's how we started our community focus. We said to people, we're going to get through this as a team. And we had one of our guys, uh, a bartender said, look, I live with my mum. Um, I don't really need much money. So I'm happy to, if you can pay for my bus fare to work, which was like a hundred dollars, I'm happy to just get paid that and work as many hours as you want. So that way people with higher expense expenses can be paid and fulfill their financial obligations. Those examples I'll never forget. And this, this was all before they announced all the benefits scheme and everything, right? This was just a process. Yeah. So, so we, we had this thing is, okay, there was the pot, you know, whatever the pot was, that's what we're working towards. Plus, obviously, you know, we need to cover cost of goods and that's what we're working towards. And same thing though, we 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 turned on takeaway and like we we actually, you know, we we also asked the community if people are struggling, you know they're struggling, reach out, we're gonna deliver food to them for free. A lot of people took us up on that offer. Um I was saying to Ben, because Ben was baking and I can't bake, so I had nothing to do. So I was doing a lot of these deliveries. <laughs> And I still remember it was really emotional. Like I turned up to one person's house and I said, Oh, thank you so much. Um, my wife's being diagnosed with cancer. Wow. We have four kids. She's only got X amount of time to live. And I was crying with the, the husband at their doorstep. Then I go to the next house. And it was another story, really sad story where someone had lost their son. He was uh, in the military and they hadn't been out of their house since the news that he died in a helicopter accident. So I'm crying with them. And it was like this really emotional time, but it was something which I'll be forever grateful for because I really connected with people in the community. It also made me realize my life and the stress that we're going through from business is nothing compared to the real world problems. And so that really allowed us to um, probably attack the problems that we're going through with a a little bit more perspective. Um, And when we did do takeaway, all of a sudden people rallied around us. They could see that we were trying to do good things for the community and, you know, by, 3 p.m. most days, if you caught up to get takeaway for that night, we're probably telling you 9 or 9.30 because it was it was received so yeah. well. And that I think we were lucky that we we got a lot of staff during COVID because people say, oh, I heard what you're doing with the staff. I want to be a part of it. And that really helped us attract some, you know, people with serious chops in the industry. Uh, yeah, and I guess that's why Ben and I probably, you know, it was a horrible time for the world, but in some ways – from a, our small little ecosystem, it was some things 
it gave perspective to what we were doing and allowed us to probably shape our business and our culture mm. in a way that was for the best. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm so inspired by that. And I think this is why it's so important to hear people's stories because you guys are obviously massively talented and, and you're just so good at what you do. But I think the reason why you're so successful is because you care so much. You genuinely care about the people around you, the community. And this is the reason why you've been able to keep continue to grow, you know? So that's a, that's an amazing story and it's so heartbreaking, but also to hear what you guys have done for your team and, and then also what they, you know, they were happy to help less money. They did for us. Yeah. That's yeah. Amazing. amazing. Ways. Sure. That's yeah. so beautiful. And, and obviously from that, you've obviously built Agnes Bakery. You got a yeah. site not far, not not far from um from the James Street precinct. Um, talk to us about that. Oh, just to jump in. So just before, so the bakery was operating, and then um, Cal and Michael approached us, and we were in discussions, you know, about you know there was a tenancy that became available in the Calal precinct, and we talked about Italian being a cuisine that we'd like to do together, but. We talked through. We haven't even got Agnes open yet. We're still in a pandemic. Are we? Are we the dumbest people in the room, or are we actually quite forward thinking? And it was probably a combination of the two. But we ended up committing to open Bianca, which is our Italian restaurant, yeah. um, in the middle of that whole thing without Agnes even opening. Wow! Wow! <laughs> wow! I, I, I just I, I got to before we talk a little bit more about Agnes Bakery. I obviously we went um we Ben when I reached out to you last week we were in Brisbane and um we went same same went to um Bianca and Bianca for I mean all your venues are amazing but Bianca from the minute you you walk in um we actually had a booking we got there a bit earlier they weren't ready but as we went to walk out the lady chased us one of the, the hosts and she's like look table just cancelled come on in so straight away from the first minute it was like these guys are onto it and then you walk in obviously the the service is amazing the food's out of this world. And just a detail, like the music is on point. Like everything you have, you have thought of everything that needs to be thought of, you thought of. And even when you're going to get the receipt, the, the printers are in the drawer. Like it's just like everything's perfect, you know. And I, I just, how do you get it to that point? Like I think everyone that dines at your venue, especially hospitality operators, they look and they walk away going, "These guys are just geniuses." Like, uh, yeah. Again, I, I think you're giving us way too much credit. I think idiot, <laughs> idiots once probably might be a more appropriate term, but it's um, look, I, I, there's two things to that. I think the first thing is Ty and myself are both really competitive people <laughs> in a friendly way. And I think we keep each other on our toes daily on a minute to minute basis. But we're also a big thing that's important to us is the, the whole dining experience. It's not just about the food, it's not just about the wine list, it's not just about uh, you know, who the chef is or any of these sorts of things. It's, it's that X factor of the room that you in, how it all ties together and, and what that means for the dining ex experience, you know, how the lighting affects what the mood's like and how the music reflects that, how the, how the food ties into it as well. It all needs to make sense together. And that's the most important thing, you know, Ty, Ty coming from a music industry, you know, he, he has the knowledge to be able to dig in and find these things um, before we even open. But we always go into each business with an idea of we, what we want that music to be like and what the vibe of the restaurant should be like. Um, you know, Agnes, Agnes's music's really eclectic. I'm not sure if you've been yeah, here or not, yeah. but it's kind of like it, the initial idea for Agnes, which has evolved a little bit from then, but it was like Af African funk from the seventies was sort of where it started. Um Afro funk, Nigerian funk, pretty much. But yeah. it's, you know, that came from we, we were 
before we, a long time before we opened Agnes, we actually went on a trip through Europe to eat in a lot of wood-fired restaurants over there and get a little bit of inspo and, and insight into what other people are doing within the genre and how that ties in. And there was a place we went to eat called Chamba Separé, um, which is closed now, but it's a, a chef owner called Kobe Desremont. He used to have uh, Inderwolf, which is a cottage in the middle of nowhere in Belgium. Uh, incredible, incredible chef, but he's really into music and jazz and funk and he's the coolest guy. And when you go to Chamba Separé, you walk into the door, um, think of it as kind of anyone that's been to Fleet or any of those restaurants where you sit around a bar and, and it's just the bar and the kitchen and that's all there is. You know, it's that sort of experience with all the wood fire element going on inside and immaculately presented. But when you walk into the venue, there's a lounge area at the start and it's the first thing you do is you sit down in these lounges and they had a record player over in the corner and they'd make you a cocktail while you sit down in the lounge, you have a drink and you have a couple of snacks. And there's just every now and then the staff will come over and select a new record and put it on. And it was the most weird mix of things but it was in seamless. the world. It didn't make any sense. You know, yeah. one minute they're paying um, German synth pop, you know, like craft work style sort of things. And then the next minute there was this weird Norwegian folk music that was going on. And, and then, uh, there was a bit of this Afro funk that they were playing in between. And it was kind of the whole vibe was just, it shouldn't have made any sense the way the music was being played, but it just really worked in, in the sense of the venue. And we found that's what was interesting. And it's the fact that it's the fire and the fireplace. And you, when you, when you're dining at a venue, there's, there's a big burning fire in front of you. There's something sort of mystical about it and sort of harks back to sitting around the campfire. I don't know if there's something imprinted in your DNA yeah. from, you know, ones of your ancestors sitting around trading stories and playing music in front of a fire but there was something about it that just really clicked and and that's sort of how the playlist started at agnes and then bianca the idea was you know bianca we always wanted to, to just be fun that was the first thing that it needs to be it just needs to be a venue yeah. it was just a good time you can go in there the food needs to be the kind of food that's really easily approached um you, you don't have to feel challenged there's a lot of you know you can sort of tailor your comfort own food. experience yeah. for comforting yeah but more importantly, we just wanted a vibe. Like it just needed to be fun. So, you know, it's let's let's go for 19, it was 60s Italian rock and roll, I think was the brief for that. And then Ty sort of goes away. He's got a few friends that are in the music industry and DJs and whatnot. And so they we start to sort of bring together a core of it. But then I guess I come into that is when I spend time in the venues, I listen to the music a lot when I'm in there all the time. That's one of the things that I gravitate towards. And then he's Ty has graciously allowed me to have access to his Spotify account for better or worse these <laughs> days. And I, um, I just tailor it in real time. And, but because and you're there cooking as well, you can hear things that resonate with customers exactly. and then go down rabbit holes based off that. But conversely, if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't matter if it makes sense when we're putting the list together, it's gone and next. Yeah. Out it goes. And then it's constantly evolving. And, you know, what I do is I, I go home and when I cook at home for my family, I'll just, put some music on in the kitchen while I'm cooking. I'll usually select like a couple of songs that I'm vibing with that are in the venues at the moment. And I'll just start Spotify radios from that. And then just start to cherry pick new music. And then we just, we just continually feed into it and evolve and you find surprising things. But uh, look, that's probably a really good metaphor as well for both of us is that we're never completely happy with how things are in the venues in a really good way. We're constantly looking at it from outside the box and thinking how can we tweak this in a minor way to improve it, and that never ends. And it must drive Fatih, who's our group operations <laughs> manager up the wall. We've had a meeting before, and we're like, bang, 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 bang. And he's looking at going, okay. Everything's fine. Nothing's broken. Why do we need to make all these changes? Yeah. You know when you go to a restaurant and if you want to enjoy yourself, 
been in the industry, you type of need to face a brick wall so you don't see anything that's <laughs> happening because if you do, you're looking at, okay, what you said, how does the docket Everything. come out? Where do the menus get stacked? Yep. How, do, how do the staff fill up water? All those things, I inevitably, if I want to actually, if I'm with friends and want to enjoy myself, I'll face a brick wall and preferably a corner and then I'll just sit there and focus in on that. But you know what it's like when you're out, you can't help but be inquisitive about how other people are doing things. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing that why we, we're pushing to, we're getting back into travel a lot is because you only learn by listening and watching, not by talking. So we're trying to do our best to take in as much and what everyone else does well and see how that's, you know, how, how we can adapt that and to make our businesses stronger. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And you, and you spoke about the approachable, you know, the food's very approachable comfort food. And what I love is you take your food seriously, but the brand's very fun. So it's like this, the high quality food, but you're eating it. You feel casual when you're eating it. You know, it's like a, you like you said, friends, birthdays, all that kind of stuff. The branding's on point. Biggest fans. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Brad. Yeah, <laughs> even the bar at Same Same, I, as soon as we walked out of um, Same Same and then we were waiting for our – because we literally started at Same Same and we ate again at Bianca, <laughs> literally back to back. And oh. it was even the bar was like – you find most bars are usually face against the window, but you guys have placed the bar at the front a bit further back from the window, so it feels a lot more comfortable and people want to sit there. So those little things. Yeah, I'm like you guys. I spot <laughs> You know, you can't help it. It's disease. Yeah, really. And and so you did touch on the fact that like you're constantly thinking, how can we get better? How can we get better? And you said you're traveling and all that things, but where, 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 when is it enough? Like, obviously we probably drive our partners crazy by constantly thinking we can change this, improve this. When is it enough? But according to a mystic that you bumped in down the coast is three years from now for you, isn't it? (laughs) By by, by chance I, I was in Bangalore and, um, a friend of ours has the Bangalore Pharmacy, which I'm not sure if you've been to, but anyone yeah. listening, I tell you, it's the best pharmacy in Australia. <laughs> and her husband is a numerologist. I think I'm saying that correctly. And so he, he sat there. We'd, we'd just finished their dinner. And we'd, they were about to start theirs, and they ended up sitting with us. And so we sat through their dinner as well. And he ran through and he said, apparently I've got three more years and then I'm done. So we'll, we'll see how true yeah. that is. But <laughs> I did say, I said to Ben, I said to Bianca, my partner, I said, the second I think that we don't want to either improve, keep improving or open new venues, it's time to sell because we're going to get, we'll start slipping. And I think the thing is our personalities are good because like Ben touched on, we are competitive. And I think the moment we're not competitive and we're complacent, I just think you'll start noticing things slip. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, that's my biggest fear is people coming into our venue thinking, oh, they used to be really good or they used to have the best food, but now it's kind of, I totally understand that. And is that, does that slow your growth then? Because you obviously don't want to, you want to keep maintaining the quality and standard of what you have already. Are you trying to slow down your growth? No, we're looking to expand it. (laughs) (laughs) But we can say that because this year we said we're not opening any venues. I said this, when I had this discussion in November, we said we're not opening anything next year. Ben, and Fatia Group Operations Manager burst into tears. I said, we're fine, but will you be? And I'm like, yes, why? And then an opportunity literally came up the next week. I said, hey, uh, so that conversation we had, and they're like, yes. And then they all both in the laughter. And not, but nothing's happening this year. And so what – it hasn't curbed our enthusiasm to grow, but I think what this year's allowed us to do is to really plan because Agnes whilst planned, the bakery was – a spin-off of the success of a pop-up. Bianca was opportunistic, 
any future steps that we want to take, we want to make sure that they're methodical and they're well thought out. Mm. And whilst everything that we're talking about is potentially the earliest 18 months away, as we know, things seem like a long time. And before you know it, we're like, oh, no, we can't open in 18 months. We need to push it out three more months. Mm. We're not ready. And we're just trying to approach every day like we're opening tomorrow. So we put make the most out of it. We make sure our meetings have got purpose and we're actually bringing the key staff in and letting them understand why we're being so critical now is because we can be. And this is the foundation which sets up us to continue to grow. And, you know, what's the analogy that everyone says is like when you look at a high rise, you don't understand that there's as much below as there is above. That's because the foundations, if they're not solid, will knock over. We're trying to use this next 18 months to really build foundations of our company culture, um, how we how we purchase alcohol, how we purchase food, how's our best way to bring it in and tie it in for the, you know, the group benefits. Are there other ways? Should we be looking at working with some people to manufacture things on our behalf? We're trying to use this time as wisely as we can whilst also sprinkling in a healthy bit of travel. Plus the internal group structure as well. We're really honing and refining on that, making sure all our processes from a group perspective. So, I mean, we have group managers across the board now as a group sommelier. We've got sommeliers in every venue, um, We've got a group bar manager, there's a group chef that's about to come on. Um, you know, there's an HR department now. It's, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, we couldn't believe it. We recently threw a, a Christmas party for the staff, you know, hospitality Christmas party, you know, in the latter half of autumn. But it's... Um, <laughs> but later than never, you know, right? We went into it thinking we had a hundred and something staff across the venue. 120, then, I thought. It was something like that. And then, you know, the the... The guys in the group department came back and said, oh, no, it's actually just shy of 250 units. Wow. We had no idea we had grown that much and we had that many people because the process was just so necessary and organic. But it's, you know, to manage all those things, you need a good core group foundation to, for those things to be able to work and operate well. Um, and so we're, we're really just honing in on that so that so that when the next steps come up, we can because we're both really acutely aware expansion is not going to be possible and it's it's going to be very difficult if we don't have the right people and the ability to attract the right people and the ability to keep them. So staff retention has been a big one this year. So we both came back from a break over Christmas, you know, thinking about what what the focus is going to be for the next year. And, and we both came back and agreed staff retention and and um, staff satisfaction is the number one thing that we need to, to get at. And how do we get our managers, group managers and in-house managers to be able to really get down to the nitty gritty and find out what motivates the staff individually. And then how can we meet those motivations? How can we know what their goals are? How can we try to help them achieve their goals both personally and professionally so that they, they don't feel like they need to go somewhere else uh, to, to get career progression or to achieve what they want to achieve. So, I mean, you know, as well as anyone that's in the industry, hiring and training staff is your biggest expense. Yeah. And, um, so, so that's the biggest key for us, and that's what we're really, really trying to hone in on. So your growth obviously will depend on the amount of great people you have within your organization, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and and as you 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 know you start hiring these great people and you start seeing this amazing potential, is that is that where opportunity approach uh, lies for these people where they can go, hey, I can be part of this group potentially as a partner or something like that. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I, I think at the moment with our hiring, like we had that actually with Agnes, our manager of Bianca. She wanted to be, Sarah is her name, she wanted to be in a managerial position. We said, look, we have a venue coming up that we think you'd be great for. 
we can't offer you the management role now. Well, we'll pay you as a manager, so we'll pay you as if you're our manager, yeah. but you're going to have to be a section way. We've already got a manager and an assistant manager, and what we're asking is a leap of faith that we are going to deliver this venue and you're going to have this role. And if you can trust us that we're going to, what it allows you to do is understand the company culture, understand how we operate. So when we do open the new venue, you've got a really good head start. And that's something we've realized is trying to promote people from within our company, get talented people, get them into the company, let them work in an existing business. So there's less pressure. So that when we go to open that new venue, they're a little bit more in front of the, they're preempting a lot of the things that we're going to ask of them because they've already experienced it in a workplace already. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And, and obviously people want to work with the best. So, you know, between you and Simon, I think you guys are hiring the whole of Brisbane. But <laughs> I think you guys have hired. <laughs> not a lot of stuff left over, I think. Yeah, you're, not wrong. you're not wrong. So I interviewed, I've also interviewed a few other people, Yanni, that's got ping pong and Georgina Venzen, who was probably one of the first people I reached out to for a bit of advice when I opened my own first cafe. She's doing some great things as well um, in yep. Brisbane. So it seems like there's, there's three or four operators there that are doing some really cool things. What, what does the, the, I mean, you guys obviously have, very successful businesses, but obviously all these businesses need to make money and obviously food costs and wage costs is the, is the biggest thing right now where that's where you can kind of save. How important is that? Like how, how thorough are you guys with those numbers? Most people, they start, oh. sorry, go on. Very thorough. Yeah. Yeah. And, I cut you off. Sorry. No, <laughs> that's no, how serious it is about it. We're very. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all good and well to have a great business, but if your business is making money, what's the point, right? Like it, it, that way you can hire more people and things like that. So. We, we are lucky with our group managers. They understand that career progression, pay rises, it all comes only from a business being financially successful. Yeah. And that's what drives it. So when we're saying to our staff, hey, your percentages are high, what we do is then try and relate it back. Is okay, coming up, you're going to want a pay rise. If we continue to offer you a pay rise and these other 10 people and we continue to perform it the way that we're performing, how do we afford this? Next thing you know, you know, super will be late getting paid, which we don't do. So like we're trying to get them to understand the business behind it. So that way they're a part of when they're making their decision-making, they're a part of the overall vision, which is this has to be financially strong in order for everyone to continue to grow in the industry. But we incentivize as well, Phil. So we offer KPIs to, to all our staff, uh, managers for managing um, managing their percentages. And, and we're pretty generous with the KPIs that we do pay out to them as well. Um yeah, I mean, it, it's part of the job. It's part of the industry and it's part of, you know, without, without if you don't start to hone in on those things, there's probably not a lot of point and you're right and you would probably lose your zest to put it to put into the businesses if they're not profitable in some way. But, I mean, especially for us with the, the way that we want to expand, if we're not making money, we're not going to be able to expand either. And, you know, we pay ourselves a very moderate salary you know like we're not very greedy with that and a lot of the money that we do make we put back into the businesses as much as we can um from a dividend structure it's it's you know we're we're, we're really all about we want to build something with longevity we want to build something that's going to be here um for years after we're detached from it really it's it's something that people can engage with it's a lifestyle and you know hopefully a legacy for our kids yeah. That's that's really what it's all about. It's not about that short-term goal for us. We're, we're not in it to get rich. We're not looking to get filthy rich off it. It'd be nice if we did, but, you know, it's not what motivates us. It's, nice. it's trying to make something of substance that we're proud of. And, yeah. and look, Brisbane at the moment, we think there's a real opportunity to do that. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, we both put a lot of time into this in the background. You know, when he talks, Ty's talking about foundation of a building and the way that it comes up. I mean, both he and I have been working pretty hard in the industry here in Brisbane for more than 15 years now. And I think that's part of these success as well as we've got a pretty good grasp on what the Brisbane public is after and what they're like and how to engage with them well. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, obviously, you know, you guys are putting things in place to make sure the future of your company is, you know, going to be healthy and, and you can keep growing. But the future of hospitality overall, like obviously, Ty, you said that you were in America and you've seen that it, it hasn't been what it was once was. Obviously, in Australia, I find we're a bit more safer out here. I don't know because we're, <laughs> we're on our own. There's no real, you know, connection there. But what, what do you see that, what do you guys see as the future of uh, hospitality? I think hospitality used to be able to rely on a regular stream of talented people coming into your business, which didn't need a lot of work and they could fit in and work seamlessly. Now, you know that adage, the grass is always greener, which we used to be a lot of hospitality or owners attitude. Hey, we can get that person, they'll be better. No, the grass is greenest where you water it. So to making sure you have good training programs in place, because I'd rather us take someone who's warm and humble and train them as to how to do their job and know that they're going to represent us well. Because like you said, the bigger we get, you get paranoid that they're not going to represent us, the standard slip from service and food. We'd rather spend more time focusing on the service level um, rather than trying to worry about who's going to walk through the door, who's going to be amazing for our business. We've got people who are, who are keen to work with us. Well, how do we get the most out of them while they're here? Yeah, I love that. Ben, did you want to add anything to that one? Uh, I mean, look, the other thing, the other side of it, I guess, thinking of the future of hospitality, I mean, you never know what the future is going to hold. You don't know how it's going to shift and what challenges it's going to present. I just think, you know, which is, to be honest, is the danger with us and the way that we want to expand is that, you know, we're probably going to end up being some form of a bureaucracy in a way that's not very nimble and is quite stiff and rigid in the way that it operates. But I just think, you know, when t hard times come around, it's just another hustle and you've got to find a way to adapt and you've got to find a way to to navigate your way through that. And I think that's just the nature of hospitality and people is it, it does change day to day. Things, there are curveballs that come across and what, whatever the public, in the, I don't know the, what's the correct word for it is, but the, the environment, the economic environment, the um, environment, the, the headspace that people are in, you've just got to find a way to connect with that and, and to offer it because that by nature is what hospitality is. And yeah. if you lose connection of the customer and what the customer is looking for, what the vibe is, you've lost you've lost the what, game. What it, it's about? It's not, too, it's not too dissimilar to retail. When online retail came on board, everyone's like, that's going to be the death of retail shops. Actually quite the opposite. The retail shops that remember your name, what you wear, what your partner wears, what your kids' names are, you go back there because you can't get that from a computer. What people don't want to do is go to a department shop, have no one serve them, and then actually try and fight to find someone to pay for your thing. You're like, why would I give that experience when I can jump on an online site, chat to someone, get the advice I want, get it delivered, have a free return. Same's not, it's not dissimilar to hospitality. As long as there's a connection between humans and the customer service is head and shoulders above what they can get anywhere else. You will be able to get longevity out of your business, but you need that customer service, even in the face of economic downturns. Well, maybe you can't be selling these dry age wagyus anymore. Maybe you're selling cheaper cuts of meat, but people still want to come in and have an experience and that's drive through hospitality service. Yeah. I love that. I love that. All your answers are so thorough and so spot on. So um, you guys obviously, you know, been in the industry for a long time now. Are you, when you look back now, do you, do you get a chance to look back and see how proud you are of what you've built or you guys just head down and just work, work, work? 
Too critical to be proud, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. It's so true. I think you can, we can be proud when we retire. Yeah. That well, you got three I'm, years, three years, right? Three years. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. Three years of growth according to, oh, to, okay. to my friend. But, okay. <laughs> but I, I, I just think we try and run hospitality businesses because we love it. Not it's not, The decisions aren't driven by ego. And I think the fact is that we love it, which is why we still want to keep opening more. And I think if ego was to ever creep into it and it make decisions based off our ego, I think we're definitely going to be going down the wrong path. Mm. I'll answer it slightly differently. I, I'm immensely proud of what we have in all the venues. I think they're all incredible. I think they all offer something different to the market as well, which is something we got a lot of diversity within the group. I mean, Agnes, for me, like I said, I'm extremely proud of this place. But the reason is because there's so much myself. You know, I, I spent a good part of three years pouring everything I had into this and reflecting it, which I don't know what it says about me being so dark and moody, but it's um, <laughs> it, it's just it's such a great venue. But I think the knack is, which is something that we're really working on, because lately I've been eating Agnes quite a lot and bringing people in because, you know, it's getting up to a few years now that we've been operating. And I think, you know, you've got to try and evolve a little bit, especially here. It's, but I tend to do, I do pick down, I do sit down and pick holes in it when I'm sitting down and I do it quite a lot. But these days I try and the people that I'm sitting with, I try to make sure that they don't know that I'm doing that. I try to keep it to myself and then I'll address it later. But then also my Twitchly. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, He's facing the corner now with me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also then coming back because the staff that work in here every day are the ones that should be really proud of it. And they're the ones that up maintain it and upkeep it. So how, how do you deliver that criticism to them in a way that, that they don't feel like they're getting shot on all the time? I think, I think that's something I'm constantly checking yeah. myself with and, and we just work on it every day. Like it's, I work on myself on a daily basis to not be that guy that I was eight years ago on the past screaming at people for plating something up slightly wrong, you know, or a wait staff picking up the plate in the wrong way and sauce spilling in the bowl. Like, you know, we've all been there in those, those days, luckily in kitchens that they're, they're a time of the past and you know, it's about positive affirmation now more than the opposite. And to be honest, you get more out of your staff that way as well. And I think there is a lot more progression and there's, there's better careers for people because of it. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's the key is making sure that the staff that come in here day to day are really proud of what they do, but then having that balance to keep them on their toes enough that they're not comfortable and think that. But we're, enough. we're also constantly analyzing um, our businesses from a customer perspective. When we dine there, look at the bill. Does it fairly represent the service, the quality of the food, the quality of the drinks, the ambience, the lighting? Because ultimately, we can go buy a sandwich for $10 and feel ripped off, but you can also spend significantly more per head in a restaurant. I think that was amazing value. And I think that's the important thing is, is to make sure that we're constantly analyzing to make sure we think that our pricing and the overall bill is reflective of the experience that the customer got. And obviously, you know, no one's perfect and we do get reviews, which, you know, uh, aren't, you know, which like we discussed before, there's not great to read, but if there's truth in it, make sure we're adjusting our business. So that way the bill becomes something that people are like, wow, that was a really good experience. I can't wait to come back. And for some people, it might only come back once a year, but that's fine. As long as they get that bill and they think that the bill is very fair and honest, that's probably the the big one for our businesses. Yeah, I love that. That's spot on. And then that's the thing. A lot of the times when you've had that experience, I think most people once have had a great experience, they don't even look at the bill. They just pay it because it's just been such a great, great feeling, right? So it's about how, you, about how you're making people feel, you know? So 
Um, guys, just think, I've, got, I've only got a couple of questions left, but if it does cut out, I'm just going to reconnect. Yeah. According, according to this thing, we have four minutes 49. Yeah, left. I'm like, I don't know. This has never happened to me before, so it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> I'm getting nervous. <laughs> I'm sweating, but yeah, I don't want to. Fast round, fast money. <laughs> well, I, obviously, a couple more questions, and I, I know you guys are busy, so I'm not going to keep you too long. But um, what, someone comes up to you guys, obviously, wants to open a cafe, restaurant, bar, nightclub, whatever it is. What piece of advice would you give them? You've dispensed some of this advice recently, haven't you? So, but it's uh, uh, first thing I say is, are you going to work in the business? If the answer is no, I'd tell people. I'd be very, very cautious about investing money into a hospitality business that you, if you haven't worked in the industry before, because there's so many ways for the business to leak. And unless you're savvy in those ways, I don't see how you'll get a return on the investment. The second thing I'll say to people, are you doing it because you're passionate about it or is it is it a decision made on passion and logic or is it something for your ego? Because if it's ego, I'd quickly tell you don't do it because what you the, the reasons you're getting into it I don't think you're going to find that fulfillment in the in the reality of it yeah um I'll tell people to ask to talk to people and actually listen to what they say as in if someone's giving you advice don't think that you've already thought of the answer if you're asking the question be happy enough to listen and take it on board it doesn't have to dictate your decision but be open to the fact that people have done it before if they're telling you something you should be at least have the courtesy of listening to what they're saying because yeah. they've probably gone through the the lumps that you're about to go through. Yeah. Um, and other than that, are you sure that's the best thing you could do in your life? Hospitality is <laughs> a lot of hard work and a lot of heartache. Yeah. Uh, but like I, I, I say that just because I think what people perceive hospitality to be is very different to the actual day-to-day. And I think if you're going in it for the right reasons and you've got a unique selling point and you're going to work day to day and you're going to get to know your customers. I think it's an amazing opportunity and rewarding career, but you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. yeah I'll add on to that. And I think unique selling point is a really important factor that I don't think enough people consider. And I think it's when you're going into it, what is your target in the market? Who are you going for? Who do you want to attract? Are you in the right area to attract those sort of people? Firstly, um, the products that you're offering does differ enough from the other businesses that are around you? Um, does it, are you presenting something that's going to attract people from outside of your basic area? Um, if that's part of your business and is it difficult enough and do you have the chops to be able to pull it off? It's, you know, all those things you have to consider, you know, if you're going into a flooded market, it's going to be really hard for yourself. And it's yeah. something I think it happens more than it should. Yeah. I love that. That's great advice. So, well, I think we're going to make it boys. Cause I've got one more question. <laughs> Um, so the, the final question is from another podcast and his final, and, he, and I love this question. And his final question is how much of your success do you put down to hard work and how much to good luck? Ben, after you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tend to say we're lucky more than anything else, but I, I think, oh, that's a really good one, Phil. I really like it. It's I've got a cliche to answer that. The harder you work, the luckier you get, isn't that something? <laughs> it's, it, it's true, but. Very true. So I do think there's something in it. I think a lot of people get luck and intuition uh, crossed over a bit. And I think you got to rely on your intuition a lot. And I think your intuition gets honed from hard work. The more you work hard on something and the more you're involved into it, the more intuitive you get within that. And then, yeah, I guess hard work creates luck. I I agree with that completely. Yeah. Yeah, It puts you, definitely puts you in the position to become a lot luckier. Right. So 
It's, you know, you like. didn't ask the question, though. I reckon perfect. 60%. We skirted around the whole thing. 50 <laughs> 50. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate it, guys. And, and I think, like I said earlier, you know, I was so excited to get you on the podcast because you, you're unbelievable operators. But, you know, after an hour of chat, I just, you're unbelievable humans as well. So I really appreciate the time and, and I can't wait to catch oh, up for a feed. Yeah, that'd be great. Mate, Thanks, we'll, Phil. We'll come and have a coffee with you in Sydney next time. Yeah, let me know when you're coming out. I'll pick you up from the airport. <laughs> Ah, thanks, mate. Thanks. Appreciate Cheers. it. Mate. Appreciate your time. Yeah, buddy. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Where am I going?